Again, good morning, church. I want to invite you to grab a Bible and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8 is where we'll spend the majority of our time in God's Word this morning. Um, And I mentioned this at the top of our service, since we don't have the projector this morning, and we'll work on having it back up next week, it's really important that you grab a physical copy of God's Word, or that you pull it up on your phone. We're going to be doing some real, I think, exegetical legwork today, and so I want you to be able to look at what we're saying. Um, Yeah, I'm excited for our time in God's Word. I want to dive right in. So we have two more weeks in this series And we're now going to pick up the pace a little bit as we walk through the last two weeks of Nehemiah. Up until this point, we've taken it one chapter at a time. But for these last two weeks, we're going to step back a little bit and really look at the 30,000 foot view of the rest of this Old Testament history book. We're going to pull out a couple of big ideas. And so today we're primarily looking at Nehemiah 8. So I want to catch us up to speed because I met a couple of y'all who are new to Coastal as you walked in. If you missed a couple weeks, I can catch us up. So we saw last week in chapter six, Tobiah, Sanballat, and a guy named Geshem are Nehemiah's enemies, the enemies to the people of God. And they're trying one last time to stop the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. We know this, Nehemiah is in Jerusalem looking to rebuild the city wall. So we saw this last week, but because Nehemiah feared God and he didn't fear man, Tobiah and Sanballat were ultimately unsuccessful in stopping the rebuilding effort. Chapter 6, verse 15 says that, so the wall was finished. The wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And so a wall that was left in ruins, church, for decades was finished in just 52 days because Nehemiah sought the face of God, equipped the people of God, and stayed focused, didn't compromise, wasn't distracted from the mission of God. The work was finished in chapter 6. And so in chapter 7, we basically get the equivalent of credits after a movie. We get a list of people returned to exiles who helped in the rebuilding project, who gave to support the work of the ministry, that talks about what was given for the project. And when chapter 7 ends, all is well. If you're looking at your Bible right now, look at the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 73. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And so that's where we are today, Coastal. The wall has been rebuilt. At the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 8, the people of God, the Israelites, are enjoying more stability, safety, and security than they've had in decades. This is a good place for them to be, but this is what I want us to see this morning. The story doesn't end there, and it could have. Like They could have returned from exile. They could have rebuilt the temple and now rebuilt the walls. They could have been done, but to their credit, Nehemiah doesn't end with chapter 6, doesn't end with chapter 7. The people of God recognize something. This is what they recognize, that since God's covenant with their forefather, Abraham, God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and then reiterates it in Genesis 15. Since that covenant, Israel has been God's people. They've been more than just an ethnic group of people. In the Old Testament, the Bible calls them his chosen possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's design for Israel in the New Testament or in the Old Testament was really to use them as a light to reach the Gentiles. And so in chapter 8, Israel comes together 
to do what God designed them to do. They come together to worship and they recognize that God has been faithful to them, that they've been brought back from exile, that they've had their borders restored and they've been brought back not just to live in stability and safety and security, but they've been brought back to worship. They come together in this chapter to glorify God, to thank God, and to worship God for what he's done for them. Now, this service, this worship gathering that we'll see in chapter 8 is going to serve as our model today. There's almost a trajectory to it, a process in it, a process of mourning and weeping over sin, a process of repentance and joy and obedience. And we're going to see from this passage that this process, the trajectory that Israel walks through, is one for us to learn from and follow as New Testament Christians. And so we're going to study through chapter 8, but before I do, let me pray. Let me ask God to bless this preaching of the word. Father, thank you so much for this time. I pray now, God, as we open your holy, inerrant, infallible word, that you would speak through it, that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Nehemiah 8. So we're going to break it up a little bit as we go along. This is the word of the Lord. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Excuse me. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. I want to pause here just for a second. I want us to see what's happening. All the people, men, women, and children, are gathered before the water gate. The water gate was a place of refreshing to hear from the Lord. And they've constructed this wooden platform for Ezra to hop on this wooden platform and to preach. And the Bible says, we just read it, that he preaches. They share the word from early morning until midday. This is a six-hour sermon, church. Anyone say amen? They didn't have child codes. Like there was nothing their kids' workers could have done. Six hours. But guess what, church? The people are attentive. They're attentive because they're hungry for God's word. It had been a minute since they heard from the word of the Lord. All right, let's keep reading. Beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Maltijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. They bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites. If you're wondering if we learn how to say those names in seminary, we don't. They just say speak faster so no one notices if you butcher them. All of these guys and the Levites help the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is 
really incredible coastal. I mean, do you see what's happening here? Ezra standing on this wooden platform is preaching. They're engaging in ministry of the word in both a large group setting. So he would stand and read the law and 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, they had small groups, a small group setting. Ezra would preach and then he'd have his small group leaders help the people understand the law and apply it to their lives. Listen, this is why I say often here that when we come up and we preach here at Coastal Church, what we're doing is not some routine exercise. When we hold up this book and say, thus saith the Lord, we are stepping into a practice and a tradition that is literally thousands of years old. Like this is a holy supernatural act, the act of preaching. It's not a TED talk. It's not supposed to be original or creative or innovative. It's supposed to be faithful. What gives preaching its power is saying, thus saith the Lord. We come together hungry every single week as a church, not because you want to hear from Colin or any other pastor who's up here, but because you want to hear from God. Or you should. That's who you should hear from. We want to hear from God. The Israelites hear from God. And as we'll see in this chapter, God blesses the preaching of his word. In 2023, God blesses the preaching of his word. And so I want to feel that just for a second, that we're stepping into something bigger than ourselves. All right, verse 9. And as I read verse 9, I want you to pay special attention to how the people respond. How do they respond to the preaching of the word? This is going to be our model, really our outline this morning. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. But then he said to them, Go your own way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and said portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Then all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. All right, there's a ton here, a ton here, especially in this paragraph, but here's what I want to see first. This is number one in your notes. This worship gathering brings about a recognition of sin. Say that again and grab a drink of water so you have time to write it now. This worship gathering brings about, it elicits a recognition of sin. Verse nine tells us the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So much so that in verses 9 through 12 alone, Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites, they command the people three separate times not to weep and not to be grieved. Now, why is this? Why are the people weeping as they hear the word? The answer is clear. When the people hear the law, they recognize two primary things. One, they recognize that God is holy that he's holy and his word is holy, that he's perfect and his word and all of his commands are perfect. The second thing they recognize as they hear the preached word is that they have fallen short of God's perfection. God is holy and they're not. They see they've fallen short of the law and sinned against God. We actually see this unpacked a little more in Nehemiah chapter 9. So I want to give you homework this week. This week at some point, read Nehemiah 9. We see this incredible prayer of confession 
as the people pour out their hearts to God, culminating in chapter 9, verse 33. 9.33 says, You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. They're saying to God, as a response to the preaching of the word, you have been faithful, God, and we have been wicked. The people are grieving over their sin, confessing their sin. They're broken over their sin. Now, let me bring this home to us just for a moment. I think that if we're not careful today in American Christianity, we can be much too quick to skip over this step, to skip over this morning is grieving over sin when it comes to our worship with God. Theologically, I think most of us, we know the right answers. We know that we're sinners. No one in this room, I think, would deny that. And we love to focus on the grace of God that covers over our sin. And we should. We sang about it this morning. We praise God for his grace. God's grace in Christ does indeed cover over our sin. And we'll get to that even today. But here's the thing. If we don't have a right understanding of the depths of our sin, then we won't have a proper appreciation for the depths of God's mercy. We have to have that step one. Think about it this way. There's a reason why most engagement rings are presented in boxes with black fabric. Why? So that the diamond would sparkle that much brighter against the contrast of the black backdrop. I think the same principle applies to us here today. When we see our own sin rightly, the diamond that is the mercy of God through Christ looks much more beautiful to us than ever before. His mercy looks beautiful. It appears precious to us because we realize just how badly and how critically we need it. Listen, everyone in this room, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, everyone in the sound of my voice right now has a desperate need for the mercy and grace of God. We're all on a level playing field when it comes to our need for God's mercy. Why is this? Because every single one of us has sinned against this merciful and gracious God. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When God looks at us and when he sees our sin, he doesn't see it as sickness or brokenness or something we're struggling with. See, I think sometimes we like to use that language because it softens what sin actually is. I can't be blamed for something I'm sick with. I can't be guilty of something I'm struggling with. It's not my fault. I'm broken. No, God sees our sin for what it is. He calls it for what it is, open and direct rebellion against our creator, cosmic treason rebellion and treason that must be judged. And that's why the people here in Nehemiah 8 are weeping. They're coming face to face with the fact that for generations, they've looked at the God who redeemed them, the God who called them his own special possession, his own holy nation. And they've said, no, God, we want something else more than we want you. We want our idols of silver and gold and stone and wood more than we want you. We want to fulfill our sexual desires, our lusts, our passions more than we want you. Israel's saying to God when they sin, we want our things our way more than we want you. And the realization of this for Israel in Nehemiah 8 was heartbreaking. And church, I think it should be for us. Because when we as Christians, when we sin against God, we're declaring to God the same thing. We're saying, God, I want my money more than I want you. 
I want control more than I want you. I want to fulfill my passions, my desires, my lusts more than I want you. When we sin, we're saying to God, I want fill in the blank more than I want you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this should grieve us, should break us. And get this, I'm going to be depressing for just one more minute here. The more we come to follow Jesus, the more we know Jesus, the more we realize how sinful and broken we really are. Let me give you an example. Maybe some of you can relate to this. I got saved when I was 17 years old. I've shared this story about a month and a half ago. God saved me as a 17-year-old. And here's what happened when I got saved. By God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the big ticket sin items in my life started to fall away. And so pornography, gone. Substance abuse on the weekends, totally gone. Even my, even my language, like my speech was cleaned up because of the Holy Spirit inside of me. God really made me a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. That doesn't work that way for everyone. Everyone, we still struggle with sin to certain extents, but for whatever reason, by God's grace, those big ticket sin items in my life were gone pretty quickly when I first found Jesus. And so here's what happened. I began to feel pretty good about myself. I say this to my shame. I, I begin to feel pretty self-righteous, pretty holy. Like if you were to ask me honestly, maybe two months after being a Christian, when all of the bad behavior in my life was gone, how are you doing in Christ? I probably would have said in a moment of total transparency, I don't think this Christianity thing is that hard. The big ticket action sin items are gone. I'm cleaned up. My behavior has changed. Which again, we know this church, that's the height of arrogance. But I was blind to it. And so it actually took a mentor taking me out to coffee and asking me how I was doing in Christ. Again, I'm a baby believer. And I was so excited to share with this mentor, dude, I've stopped doing all the stuff that God tells me not to do. I've stopped doing it. I'm not watching pornography anymore. I'm not drinking beer as a 17-year-old. Like my life has really changed. Look at all this behavior that I've stopped and look at this new behavior, going to church, reading my Bible that I've started. And my mentor looked at me, he smiled and he said, gently and directly, okay, Colin, that's good. We've dealt with your hands. Now God wants to deal with your heart. And I remember that hit me like a ton of bricks because I realized in that moment that my self-righteousness, my pride, my arrogance was just as offensive to God as watching pornography. God wasn't just after the actions of my hands. He was after the attitudes of my heart. My pride was sinful to him. My arrogance was offensive in his sight. And I remember thinking two months into following Christ, this sanctification thing is going to take my entire life. And in a way, praise God, it will. Here's, here's what I think we need to do this morning. When you come to a healthy realization, and if you've been following Christ for decades, you could attest to this. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you realize how far you still have to go. Does that make sense? The more we grow in conformity to Christ, the more we're sanctified, the more we realize how wicked we really are, how far short we fall of God's perfect standard. And think that this is a healthy place for us to be this morning. A healthy recognition and understanding that, God, you are greater than I can even imagine, and I am worse than I can even imagine. It's a healthy step. Like the Israelites in Nehemiah 8, we should mourn and grieve over our sin because 
It is a very right response to God's holiness. But get this, church. While it's a right response, it's not a complete response. So look at me at verse 7. I'm going to give you a minute because I really want you to look at it. Verse 7 tells us that the people understood the reading. And as a result of them understanding the reading, that's what caused them to weep over their sin. But based on the priest's response here in verse 9, their understanding of the reading was an incomplete one. They obviously, they didn't understand everything yet. Look down with me now at verse 12. They're weeping. Somewhere between verse 9 and verse 12, they're weeping over their sin turns to rejoicing. Verse 12, because they had understood the words that were to click to them. So clearly they understood the word and they wept over their sin, but then they came to a greater understanding, which actually led them to rejoicing. What is this greater understanding? Number two in your notes, it's a realization of mercy. So as we see this progression, I want us to see, we start with a recognition of our sin. It's a good, healthy, proper place for us to start. But God doesn't expect us to walk around sad all the time. God isn't honored by that. So number two, a realization of mercy. This is where it gets really good. We've already seen three separate times that Ezra, Nehemiah, and and the Levites tell the people to stop weeping and grieving. They do that in different ways in verse 9, verse 10, and verse 11. But now we're going to look at the why. And here's why it's really important for you to see this. I want us to look at it together. Verse 9, why shouldn't the people weep? This day is holy to the Lord your God. Verse 10, go your own way. Basically have this feast. Why? Why are they doing this? But this day is holy to the Lord, our, to holy to our Lord. Verse 11, be quiet. Why? For this day is holy. Do you see what's happening here? They tell the people to stop weeping. The same reason is given three times. This day is holy. The people's natural response to holiness, and I think if we're honest, our natural response to holiness is weeping. We look at ourselves. We look at how far we've fallen short. But this passage is adjusting our response. It's adding to our response. And instead of connecting holiness with grieving over sin, it's connecting holiness with joy. With joy, church. Look at verse 10 again. Don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This grieving is to be replaced with the joy of the Lord, which the text says is our strength, or literally in the Hebrew, our refuge, our protection, our fortress. Now, why have joy? Because God, being fully good and fully holy, has made a way for sinful and rebellious people to have their sin forgiven and for them to be with him forever. We can be full of joy because God is full of mercy. Now, this was cloudy for the Israelites. And we'll see this. The Israelites observed sacrifices. They had feasts and festivals. And all of these foreshadowed a more permanent way for them to have their sin forgiven. An atonement, a forgiving of sin that would happen once and for all. And all over this chapter... In Nehemiah 8, that atonement is being foreshadowed for us. In Nehemiah 8, Ezra stands up on a wooden platform to read the law. And this points us, church, to a day when Christ would hang on a wooden platform to become the law for us. Christ has become the law. The righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled in Jesus. And 
while the Israelites could only long for that day, we in 2023 can look back on it and see that God's mercy is crystal clear in the person and work of Christ. That despite our sin, despite our rebellion, despite our depravity, Jesus came to earth to die for our sin. And he did this because his heart was set on providing for us mercy. Jesus said to us, I want you more than I want comfort. I want you more than I want to avoid suffering. I want you more than I want my own life. And so Jesus gave up his life only to be resurrected back to life, making a way, church, for God in his holiness to turn our mourning into joy. This is what we have to understand. The abstract refuge of joy in the Old Testament has found its perfect fulfillment for us in the New Testament. And listen, that joy tastes so much sweeter when we realize just how merciful it is. Merciful, because when we trust in Christ, we go from rebellion on one hand to righteousness on the other, to being crushed under the weight of our sin, to being freed by the mercy of our Savior. Again, it's that black backdrop of our sin that magnifies and glorifies the diamond of the mercy of Christ. And so slowly but surely in this Christian life, we realize that we are far worse than we could ever imagine and that God is far kinder than we can ever comprehend. John Owen, a Puritan, said there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Jesus talked about this too. There's a story that he tells in Luke chapter 18, a parable of two men who go to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, if you're new to church, Pharisees were the religious rulers of the day. They were the epitome of self-righteousness. They were me, really, two months after I got saved. They kept the law to a T. They even invented new commands so they could keep more commands. And the gospels portray them as pretty judgmental. The other person who goes into the temple is a tax collector. Now, a tax collector was the worst of the worst in Jewish society, the lowest of the low. Tax collectors were Jews who betrayed their own people to collect taxes from the governing Roman Empire. And often, they would collect more than they needed, lining their own pockets with the wages of their own people. So as Jesus sets up the story, it's pretty clear that most people are expecting things to go well with the Pharisee in the temple. And so the two men walk into the temple, and the Pharisee prays first, and he goes right up. And instead of asking for forgiveness, he prays a, he prays a prayer of thanksgiving. If you know the story, you know what he prays. He says, God, I thank you, which is a good start. Then he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. Thank you that I tithe and I worship and I fast and I do all the things I'm supposed to do. In his self-righteousness, what's happening to the Pharisee? He doesn't understand that there's a black backdrop of his sin that is robbing him of the mercy of God. He doesn't understand that he needs mercy, so he doesn't receive mercy. Now, what happens with the tax collector? The tax collector goes into the temple, doesn't even look up into heaven. Luke 18 tells us he beats his breast, not even looking up into heaven and prays one thing, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's what's happening. The tax collector sees the black backdrop of his own sin. He sees the depths of his wickedness. He sees and rightly recognizes his own depravity, yet he walks away justified. Why does he walk away justified? Because he understood that he had a need of mercy. 
Listen, church, we are all the tax collector in the room this morning because we're people who want to come to God and say, God, be merciful to us because we are sinners. And when we pray that, God in his mercy turns our mourning, our weeping, the beating of our breast into joy and justification. Because the proper, complete response to God and his holiness is not weeping, it's joy. We see this in the rest of Nehemiah 8. They basically go out and they throw a party with good wine and good food. They do this because God's holiness leads to their happiness and God's holiness should lead to ours. Now, this joy, this realization of mercy doesn't end there, doesn't end with that response. In the last section of chapter eight, we see that there's one more step in this progression of worship for the Israelites. And really, there's one more step for us this morning. So this is number three in your notes. We see after they realize that they've received mercy, we see a response of obedience. A response of obedience. And so let's close out chapter eight, beginning in verse 13. On the second day, the heads of father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. When we see booths, think tents. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof. And, excuse me, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. From, for from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, for the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. It's chapter eight. So track with me here. Number one, the people of God, they hear the word. They recognize the weight of their sin. Number two, they understand the word more fully and they rejoice coming to a realization of mercy. And we do the same, praising God for his mercy through the gospel of Jesus. And then number three, finally, we see here at the end of the chapter, the Israelites respond to this mercy with joyful obedience. I love verse 14. They find in the law that they should be keeping this feast of booths, which sometimes called the feast of tabernacles. Now, this feast was really a celebration. It was held at the end of the agricultural year in Israel when grapes and olives were harvested. It was a time to celebrate God's provision. The feast was important, but to dive into the details of it today misses our point this morning. Here's what I want us to understand. The people found a command in the scriptures that they were out of step with. And because they had received mercy, they then immediately revert their lives back on course to conform it back in line with the scriptures. They see a command in the word, and instead of questioning it, arguing it, trying to get around it, or ignoring it, they obey it. And church, this is the heart posture of people who have really been changed by mercy. This is critical for us to understand today. If we have truly walked through step one this morning, if we've recognized our own sin, 
We walk through step two. If we've seen our sin and received God's mercy by trusting in Christ, then step three, a response of obedience will be the natural, inevitable outflow of what God has already done in our hearts. If there's no step three, no obedience to the submission of the authority of this book, then it's very likely that we haven't actually received mercy in the first place. Jesus says this in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what does that tell us? It tells us that if we love Christ, we truly love and know Christ, then listen, there will not be a single area of our lives that remains untouched by his lordship. We call him Lord. You know what that means? It means master, master of everything. Maybe this will help. If you've been around Coastal for a while, you know that when we, we take up the giving of our tithes and offerings, as we've done this morning, Pastor Sean has said this for 20 years. I say this every week now. What do we say if you're new or just joining us? Fill in the blank if you've been around forever. We're not after your what? Money. We say that every week. We're not after your money. And that's true. I mean that. We're not. I'm not after your money. Here is the pastor of this church. God's not after your money. You know what God's after? Everything. He's after everything. It's after your relationships. It's after your career. It's after your family. It's after your thought life, your hobbies, your leisure, your time. It's after your talent. And yes, God is after your treasure. God has offered you mercy. He's brought you, if you're a Christian in this room, to a realization of mercy to then have you respond with total and wholehearted obedience to the commands of his word. And as he does that, he's creating for himself a holy nation, a special possession, a royal priesthood to use us, claim his glory to the ends of the earth. All right, I want to invite the band back up. I'm going to invite our prayer team up too. We're going to close and worship through song here. As they come up though, two things. One, I said this last week, if you need prayer today, and if maybe there's an area in your life that you're struggling with about obedience, you're holding it back and you want to confess sin, come and do that. These people would love to pray with you. If you want to talk about what it means to receive mercy yourself, come and do that. I would love to talk to you. Prayer team would love to speak with you and pray with you. As we close, I want to share this. I came across this this week. I found it fascinating. When we receive mercy, our lives are changed. When we receive mercy, we lay down everything we have before the Lord Jesus. I saw that firsthand this week. A couple of years ago, I had a chance to go with Pastor Andrew to Egypt and Jordan. Um, we went there to minister to some partners that we have in Egypt, some local church planters in Cairo and around Cairo. And then we went to Amman, Jordan, about an hour outside the border of Israel to establish connections, to further connections. We want the gospel to go forth everywhere. And there's this incredible pastor in Amman that I got to know named Pastor Samer. Pastor Samer, man of God, delightful guy. And his wife is incredible. His kids are amazing. And he is the pastor of a small Baptist church in Amman. And they have another church in Zerka, which is about 45 minutes outside of Amman. And Jordan, if you don't know, is a 98% Muslim-dominated country. And this brother is laboring faithfully, relatively anonymously for the cause of Christ. To lay down his life, Jesus, I want to make disciples here in Jordan. And they're seeing people come to Christ. The church is growing. So we got a chance to check in with him this week because, again, like I said, Amman is about an hour from the border of Israel. And if you're on top of your current events, 
it's been going down. It's been awful. There's a humanitarian crisis in Gaza right now. Israel is at war. And so we wanted to check on our partners in the area. So we had a chance to speak to Pastor Sommer this week, and he shared with us an incredible thing and a really hard thing. Start with a really hard thing. He has friends in Gaza where right now a humanitarian crisis is underway. His friends in Gaza, he has pastors, friends of his in Gaza. He knows Christians in Gaza. And he shared with us that right now Hamas is systematically hunting down and killing Christians and pastors in Gaza. And it's not being reported on the news. That this organization wants Christians to die. And he's got a friend, that the president of the Baptist Union in Gaza, who was killed just last week. And as we know, I mean, there's this, there's this organization effort to get people out of Gaza and millions of people are trying to flee Gaza right now. They don't have a ton of places to go, but they're trying to leave. Samer said that the pastors are staying. Pastors are staying, knowing that they are being hunted down. They're staying to minister to people in and around these hospitals. They're staying to minister to people who desperately need to recognize their sin and receive mercy and respond with obedience. And so that's the hard thing. Pastors right now, this week, Coastal Church, are losing their lives. They're losing their lives. My question was, why are they staying? They're staying because we're seeing right now in Gaza, hundreds and hundreds of people putting their faith in Jesus. We're seeing right now in Gaza amidst the rubble and the destruction as a result of these pastors' obedience, people are more open to the gospel of Jesus than ever before. People who are following the false god of Islam are realizing that Islam can't take away their sin. They're recognizing that they have a need for mercy, that they're hearing that there's mercy in the person and work of Jesus. And so amidst executions in Gaza, pastors are staying to lead people to Christ. Now, why are they doing this? Why not leave? There's no shame in leaving in this moment. There's no shame in leaving this month. They're staying because they've realized they've received mercy and then they've laid their lives on the line saying, God, you can have everything. Not my money, you can have everything my money, my life, my family. And so I didn't know how to respond to that. But I know that in America, sometimes when we talk about sacrifice, our sacrifice is so minimal. It's so minimal. And so there's probably a better way to end this sermon, right? But, but here's my prayer. I want us to stand. Let's stand together. And we're going to sing one more song. I want to actually give us a moment of silence. And in this moment... I want you to pray. I want you to pray. And I know in a room this size, we're different people coming from all kinds of backgrounds. I get that. And so for some of you, you're not a Christian. You're thinking, what are these Christians doing talking about Jesus, talking about the gospel? If you're not a Christian in the room this morning, I want you to know God loves you. God loves you so much. He sent his son to die for you, to die for your sin. So this morning, recognize your sin. Recognize that you've fallen short of his standard. Respond by trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. Pray that in this moment of silence. If you're a follower of Christ in this room, do a couple things. One, thank God for his mercy. Thank God for his mercy. You are the tax collector in the temple. There was a moment when you prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God answered that prayer and forgave your sin and wipes you clean. The second thing I want you to do if you're a Christian is honestly pray for our pastor friends in Gaza right now. Pray that the gospel would continue to go out. Pray for them. Pray for protection, for gospel fruit. 
And then ask God, in what way would you prompt me to obey you this week? That's it. Take a moment between you and the Lord. Father, I thank you for the worship gathering that we see in Nehemiah chapter 8. And Jesus, I thank you for this worship gathering today that for thousands of years, when your people come together under your name to read your book, special things happen. Special things that we can't fake, we can't conjure up, we can't manufacture, special things that only you can do. So God, I pray for hearts all over the room this morning. God, that if people are far from you, I pray that you would draw them near. Maybe there's a Christian in here that has been wandering, backsliding, stuck in sin. Their hearts are growing callous. They don't even care about sin anymore. I pray, God, that right now you call them back. That you call them back. I pray for the one in here that doesn't know you. I pray that they would receive mercy this morning that they would go from being a rebel in your sight to an adopted son or daughter. I pray for that this morning. I pray for acts of obedience all around this room, God, that you would prompt us in different ways, that we would see, God, that you're not just after our money, you're after everything. You're after everything. And so what is it in my life? What's is it in our lives that... We're holding back thinking that we're keeping something for ourselves when, Lord, you have it all. You own it awful. Everything is yours. God, we praise you for the example of these pastors right now in the Middle East. That in the midst of violent persecution and threat of death, that they see you and the Great Commission as worth laying down their lives for. And so I pray for safety. I pray for safety for their families. Keep their kids safe, God. Keep their wives safe, God. I even pray right now as a dad that you would help them to see and that you would help their kids to see that their dads are doing something that really matters. That their dads are doing something that's really important. So be with those kids. I pray for more and more people who are enslaved to the false God of Islam that they would open their eyes turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, fully God and fully man, the Redeemer, the one Lord of all. I pray that you would bring forgiveness and life and freedom through Jesus Christ. Save more people, God. Thank you for our time today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.